we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Kyle. I have the privilege of being the pastor here at Crossroads Christian Church, and it's also my honor and privilege to be able to open up the Word of God uh, with you today on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday. And I want uh, to start with a question that at first glance may not seem as if it's Easter-related or resurrection-related, but the question is, uh, raise your hand if you have been around young kids recently, like in your life, like in your everyday life. Have you been around young kids? Okay, decent amount of hands, majority of the room. Um, Have you ever noticed that young kids ask the question, why, a lot? You ever notice this? They ask why, and you answer, and then they ask why, and you answer, and then what do they do? They ask why. A study in the UK actually said that the average child asks 73 questions per day. 73 questions a day. Um, Some studies even say that four-year-olds, which, uh, you know, scientists have figured out four-year-old, that is like the peak question-asking age. Uh, Four-year-olds ask 200 to 300 questions a day. That's a lot. Many of these questions are why questions. And if you parent or maybe you teach somebody this age, you know how exhausting it can be to try to answer all of those questions. Kids ask why all the time because that is their way of learning about the world around them. But studies show also that people stop asking as many questions as they get older. Um, There's, of course, probably a variety of reasons for why this might be true, um, which we're not going to dive into the deep science of that, but perhaps, maybe just think about this, by not asking why, maybe sometimes we miss out on important truths or we miss out on understanding something that might actually be really important in our lives or maybe crucial to our lives. Today's Easter Sunday which means that we are going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you came to church today, um, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get a message about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, Maybe you haven't been in church for a while. Maybe uh, life's been so busy that you haven't considered the resurrection uh, in some time in your daily life. And if that's the case, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here today. I hope you'll take the next few moments to lean in together um, and consider the resurrection of Jesus along with us. Um, Today we're going to ask and answer a why question. Maybe it's a question you're asking yourself whether you've been in church recently or not. Maybe it's a question you're asking specifically today. The question is, why does the resurrection matter? Why does the resurrection matter? So we're going to dive into the Bible to answer this very important question. And if you've been at Crossroads, um, if you've been coming for a few weeks, you know that this year we have been working our way through the New Testament book of Luke. Now, Luke is one of the four Gospels. Uh, There's four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and a Gospel is an eyewitness account of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so consider today's message kind of like the exclamation point on the series, as today we're going to finish our study of the book of Luke by looking at the last few chapters of the book. So I'm going to give you the roadmap. Here's how it's going to go. I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of the end of the book of Luke, Luke 22 through 24, if you're following along in your Bible. That's Luke chapter 22 is where you can start. This tells of the last days of Jesus's earthly life and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And then we're going to answer the question, why does the resurrection matter? So that's where we're going. Hang with me. Let's do this. The story begins with a betrayal in Luke 22. It says in verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and he conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him, that's Jesus, to them. 
And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So one of Jesus' disciples, named Judas, actually seeks and tries to betray Jesus for the money that the religious leaders were going to pay him because they didn't like the message Jesus was teaching. So on the Passover, it was customary to prepare and to dine at a large meal. At this particular Passover meal that we now know as the Last Supper, Jesus spends time with his disciples and he gives them several foreshadowing words about what was going to happen to him in the coming days. Um, because remember, Jesus is God. He knows what's coming. He knows, what, he knows where he is, he is going. And Jesus also institutes the practice that we continue today that we're going to partake in in a little bit here in our service called the Lord's Supper or Communion. And so here's what it says in Luke 22. It says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them, who it could be, who was going to do this. Now, the reader knows, um, to step back from the story for a second, the reader knows that this is going to be Judas um, who betrays him. Judas kind of quietly leaves the meal. Um, he leaves early, and he goes and he sets up Jesus to be arrested later um, under the cover of darkness. So let's fast forward to after dinner. Now, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And this was common practice. Jesus actually prays. Um, he actually, in this instant, prays, and he says, God, my Father, if there's any other way to accomplish the salvation of the world, I'm asking that there be another way besides the cross, besides the cross. God, if there's any other way for you to accomplish the plan of salvation besides it, please do that. But ultimately, if not, Jesus says, God, I pray that your will be done, even if it meant facing the cross which Jesus knew that he would do and that he came to do in our place. And the Bible tells it like this. It says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Yes, you heard that correctly. Jesus actually sweats blood in anticipation of the wrath of God coming upon him. He sweats blood. Jesus was the sinless, perfect son of God. Yet he would be forsaken by God, his father, and would in fact, the Bible says, become sin for us. He would become sin for us. He would stand in our place on the cross. And right after this, Jesus is arrested and he's brought before many different Jewish leaders and high-ranking officials, including the high priest, before ultimately ending up before a man named Pontius Pilate, who at the time was the Roman governor of Judea, of the region that they lived in. 
Pilate then succumbs to the crowd's calls to crucify Jesus and actually ends up releasing a murderer to the crowds to, to let him out of prison and, 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 and so he wouldn't have to face execution. Um, but then he sends Jesus off to be crucified because that's what the crowds demanded. The Bible tells it like this in Luke 23, verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he, that's Pilate, said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore just punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but then he delivered over Jesus to their will. And on Good Friday, if you were with us in our service then, uh, we reflected on the cross of Christ and on his death as documented in the scriptures. The scriptures from Luke 23 tell it like this. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Then Jesus was buried in a tomb. They put a huge stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and a man named Joseph of Arimathea was the one who took care of Jesus's burial. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Now, this leads up to Today, that's the story up through Good Friday. Now today, the third day, after Jesus died, what we celebrate as Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus, listen to Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus, or the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The women were going early in the day to visit the tomb, but it was empty. There are two angels there that deliver the message to them, he is not here, he has risen. Then these women, they go and they tell Jesus' followers that he's risen. Um, Peter hears this from the women. He hears the message. He says, huh, that's interesting. I actually didn't get my run-in today, so let me go get a run-in. He sprints down from where he's at and goes to the tomb, and he 
race is there. He looks in, and, and the Bible says he marvels at the situation, at who is not there. Later in Luke 24, Jesus appears to his followers, and he reminds them that he promised to rise again. He reminds them he had promised that he was going to conquer sin, that he was going to defeat death. He, he reminds them of these things. He says, and forgiveness and eternal life are available to whoever believes in me. Listen to how the Bible tells it in Luke 24. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Church, that is the story of Easter. That is what Christians for over 2,000 years have been celebrating on Easter Sunday. It's the resurrection of Jesus. So now, let's answer, answer the question. Why does the resurrection matter? There's two reasons I, I want to give you as to why it matters. The first one is the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. You see, Jesus told his disciples exactly who he was, and what he came to do during his earthly ministry. I'm going to give you a few examples of when he did that. Jesus claimed to forgive sins in Mark 2, 5. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, pause. We might read over that. Maybe you've been in church for a little while and you go, well, yeah, Jesus forgives sins. I, I've heard that before. I know that. Um, I'm going to stop because back then, <laughs> forgiveness of sins was recognized as something only God could do. So when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to forgive sins, that was like to the, to the religious leaders because they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, that's something we know only God can do. And Jesus is like, yeah. <laughs> um, the religious leaders of the day were shocked that Jesus was actually saying that he could do this, um, which of course is Jesus's way of saying, hey, I'm God. I'm the second person of the Trinity <laughs> um, right here in front of you. And there's an account of this in the book of Mark. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? Now, it didn't say that they said this out loud. It just said they're questioning this in their hearts. Like, why, why is he saying that he can forgive sins? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? So imagine you're sitting there. Like, imagine you're sitting there Jesus says something and you're like, you know, this is like the thought bubble in your head that you see on TV. And it's like, why is he saying those things? Like, like what is, like, hmm, that seems like only something, you know, God can say and do. Um, and Jesus goes, why do you question these things, Kyle? <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, sorry, Jesus. Um, which is easier, he goes on, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turns to this, this paralytic, this guy who's paralyzed. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. You see, Jesus actually doubles down and he goes further doing another thing that only God can do, which is giving a paralytic the power to walk again. Isn't the power of Jesus amazing, church? He can forgive sins, yes. But then he says, well, what's easier? (laughs) What's more difficult? Is it easier to say, hey, your sins are forgiven? Or or is it easier to say to somebody who has never walked, get up, pick up your things, and go home? And then he does it. Jesus also told people that he was going to die and rise again. He told people this during his ministry. Listen to Matthew's gospel as Jesus addresses the religious leaders. It says in Matthew 12, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, what's he talking about there? In the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet of God, and Jonah, because he was disobeying God and actually running away from God when he was supposed to be carrying a message from God to people, he was running away, he was going in the opposite direction, God appoints a great fish to swallow him. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish, and on the third day, sound familiar? On the third day, Jonah gets spit out of the fish, back on the land, And God says, now go do the thing that I told you to do. In the same way, Jesus makes the claim that he will rise out of the tomb on the third day, overcoming everyone's greatest fear, which is death. And earlier in John's gospel, when Jesus comes to the tomb of his friend, um, a guy named Lazarus, um, Jesus is coming to his tomb, not just to visit like his graveside or not just to pay his respects, but Jesus is coming to the tomb of his friend who just died um, to do something amazing. Jesus uh, actually says, yeah, I'm going to raise him from the dead. So yes, that's right. Jesus actually foreshadows his resurrection with a resurrection of someone else. Pretty cool, right? He actually calls himself the resurrection and the life. Listen to these verses. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a pretty impressive statement of faith because Jesus shows up on the scene after Lazarus has already died and Martha looks at him and says, I know, I know that you have the power of God. If you were here, he probably wouldn't be dead. But then she continues and she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, like, Jesus, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, like when you come again and you make everything that is wrong right in the world. I know he's going to rise again then. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then she makes an even greater statement of faith. Martha says, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. If Jesus had stayed dead in the tomb after he died on the cross, if he had stayed dead in the tomb, then what he said here would be untrue. But because Jesus rose again after dying, 
Jesus shows and proves that his words were not just empty promises to make Martha feel better in the moment. They were the truth. And lastly, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he reminds his readers at the beginning of the book of Romans, he says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The resurrection church proves that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God himself. The second reason why the resurrection matters today, the resurrection means that we can have eternal life. The resurrection means we can have eternal life. This changes everything. If you believe that Jesus is God's son and you believe that he rose from the grave, then this has to matter in your everyday life. This can't be something that you're like, yep, I believe that, cool, and then you go on. Doesn't work that way. Like this, like this I, if that's true, like if you're gonna say, hey, I think that's true, then that has to matter in your everyday life. And you might say, well, why, Kyle? Well, humanity has a problem. <laughs> it's a sin problem. If you've lived more than a little while on this earth, you probably know that this is true. Sin is actually, according to the Bible, weaved into our very nature. It goes all the way back to that story that if you grew up in church, you heard about Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they broke God's commandments in the Garden of, of Eden, sin entered the world. And once they broke God's commandments and sin entered the world, it's been tainting God's creation ever since. The stain of sin, it stains us, it stains you, it stains me, and it stains our natural world. The Bible says it stains, it puts a stain on the whole creation. And if you think about it, you already know this is true. This is why we have things like natural disasters in our world. <laughs> this is why things like diseases, pandemics. This is why we have emotional strife and conflict and wars and rumors of wars and all kinds of painful circumstances that happen in our lives. This is why, because the world, the Bible says, is stained by sin. Parents, if you're a parent, this is why you never have to teach your children how to disobey you properly. You don't have to have a lesson on disobedience, on how to do it. They already know. You don't ever have to talk to your child, okay, here's how you throw a proper fit. Here's how you throw a proper temper tantrum. They already know how to do that. Where did they learn that? If you're single or unmarried, this is why you don't have to stress. There's this myth out there in the world that there's like one right person for you. One right person, all right? So if you're single or unmarried, you might be thinking, or maybe you've thought in the past, hey, there's one right person. You know, I watched a bunch of Disney movies. There's one person. Like, I have to find that right person. If I don't find that right person, I totally miss it. Um, that's actually, that actually can't be true. You know why? Because you're always going to be the wrong person. Because you bring your sin into every relationship that you enter. We all do it. I do it. You do it. We all do it. Um, I think the great theologian of our day, Taylor Swift, actually got this one right. She says in one of her songs, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. I think she got that one right. Couples, 
if you're married or you're in a relationship, this is why you never have to remind your spouse to do the things that drive you up the wall. This is why you never have to remind the person that you live with to irritate you or push your buttons in all the wrong ways. My wife never has to remind me to do that. I already know how. And this is because of sin. So those of you who are sitting here today or maybe you're watching online and you have endured extreme suffering in your life, I want you to know there's an explanation for your suffering. And there is hope in the midst of the hard times that you might face. And there's hope available to you in an eternity with God that the Bible promises and God promises and the resurrection guarantees is free from sin and suffering. I want you to know there's hope. The Bible says that we are born into sin, born in a sinful world, and that makes life exceedingly difficult sometimes. The Bible tells us very clearly that nobody can live up to God's perfect standard, that all have sinned. Psalm 14 says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Again, we read in the scriptures, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And church, even if we wanted to, on our own, we cannot justify ourselves or do anything to earn good favor with God. We can't earn enough brownie points, enough gold stars on the chart. There's nothing we can do, the Bible says, because Romans 3.20 is true. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The only way, church, the only way on Easter Sunday and every other day of your life, the only way that we can be saved is through faith. Specifically, faith in Jesus Christ. Even more specifically, faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. The resurrection is not just important to Christians, it's the foundation of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And here's the thing, remaining in our sin is a huge problem for us humans because ultimately sin leads to death. The first part of Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Maybe you grew up in church, maybe it's been a while since you've been in church, maybe it's been a long time, but you've probably heard that verse somewhere. For the wages of sin is death. Physical death comes for us all. We know this. I don't, have to, like, I don't have to talk necessarily about that. You know that that is true. Physical death comes for us all. Maybe you've had somebody close to you die recently. Maybe you've been stung by death's blow in your friend group, in your family. Maybe sometimes you think about your own death and what happens when you die and after you die. I recognize that's not like the cheeriest or happiest thought, but maybe it crosses your mind sometimes. But there's also such a thing that the Bible speaks of as spiritual death. And spiritual death is a separation from God forever. Sin causes us to be separated from God, to be cut off from his presence in our lives. The Bible says that because God is holy and perfect, he cannot be in the presence of sin. So that's a problem for us that we actually cannot solve on our own. We don't have much ability to solve that problem. But here's the good news, church, on Easter Sunday. The Bible doesn't leave us without hope. The Bible doesn't leave us in that situation. The story does not end there. 
the solution to the sin problem is a savior, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves him to be God and proves that he has power over sin and death. Remember the first part of Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. That's not the whole verse. There's a second part to that verse. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus gives life. He gives eternal life. It only comes through him. And here's the best part. He gives it to us as a gift. It's a gift. This is the good news of Easter Sunday. Why does the resurrection matter? It matters because it means that we don't have to fear death and we don't have to die in our sins. The Bible tells us we can be forgiven of our sins and we can experience new life in Jesus Christ. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, and he's talking about himself, He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way back to God. Jesus offers you the life that you were looking for. Jesus offers you eternal life as a free gift. He offers you all of these things. And the resurrection that we're celebrating today, church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the grave on the third day, according to the scriptures, according to what he told everybody while he was on earth, according to all the prophecies that he fulfilled, that resurrection, you can actually celebrate every day and you can celebrate it in all of eternity with Jesus himself if today you place your faith and trust in him. This is why the resurrection matters. It matters because you matter to God. God has made a way for you to live with him forever. He's done this because of his great love for you. Romans 5 says this, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that verse makes sense to us, right? Like we read that verse up here on the screen and it makes sense. We say, Yeah, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though maybe if somebody's like really good, you might be willing. Like, you know, they do a lot of good things. Maybe, maybe I would die for them. Like they do a lot. But it says God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, people that had rejected God, had run away from him, had kept themselves on purpose, walled up and far off from him on purpose, it says Christ died for them. Those are the people Christ died for. And that's us. Jesus went to the cross and took the penalty for our sin in our place. And by rising from the grave, he showed that he alone, no other name, he has the power to save us and he alone offers us forgiveness for our sins. So the question is, will you trust in him today? 2,000 years ago, it seemed to many people as if the story of Jesus was over when he died on the cross. It seemed like, hey, that's it. Many of his disciples actually felt that way after Good Friday. But today on Easter Sunday, I want you to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that his story wasn't over and that your story is not over either. No matter what you've done or how far you have run, 
God invites you. He invites you. He says, come back to me. Come to me. He says, turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. Turn to me. Simply turn away from your sin and turn toward Jesus for salvation. Your story doesn't have to end with your worst moment, your biggest failure, or your unrealized dreams. When your life belongs to Jesus, church, your story's never over. God can redeem even the worst of circumstances for your good and for his glory. This is the power of the resurrection life, the life that is found in Jesus. Maybe you're looking for that life today. What better day than Easter Sunday for you to experience the power of the resurrection by giving your life to Christ? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and that you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's nobody who's gone too far. You might think that's you. You might be sitting here and go, nope, I'm the one. No, you're not. (laughs) You have not gone too far. He is powerful, the Bible says, to save to the uttermost (laughs) those who turn to him. The resurrection proves that he can save you too. Here's the thing. You can't take a neutral position on Jesus. Either he is who he said he is or he's not. Either the resurrection, as we just showed, proves that Jesus is God's son, or you have to come to the conclusion that Jesus must have lied, all the eyewitness accounts in the Bible aren't true, all the early disciples and apostles were willing to die or be exiled or persecuted for a lie, Um, or, you know, that all Christians for 2,000 years have lied about everything. You have to believe one thing or the other. There's no middle ground with Jesus. And on this Easter Sunday, Jesus is calling you to eternal life with him. He's calling you to come to him. And eternal life is possible because the resurrection guarantees it. That's why the resurrection matters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, God, fulfilling all that you came to do, paying the penalty for our sin, conquering sin, defeating death, and offering us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We thank you for the cross, and we thank you for the resurrection. And we look forward to the the day when we can join you in all eternity with all those who have placed their faith and trust in you and worshiping you forever and ever. And God, I just pray uh, that as we enter into a time of response here in our service, God, that you would do the work that you need to do in anyone's hearts, God, that you need to do it. And God, we entrust this time to you and we entrust these things in Jesus' name, amen.